Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Drew Dixon, the founder of Albert Bridge Capital and chief investment officer of the Alpha Europe Funds, where he manages $350 million in European equities. Our conversation covers Drew's early career across the Chicago School, Fidelity and Oxif, and his perch in Europe. We then go through Albert Bridge's investment process, portfolio construction, assessment of risk-reward, and client communication through blogging and tweeting. All told, Drew offers a deep dive on how to blend fundamental research and behavioral finance in taking on the stock market. 
Please enjoy my first meeting with Drew Dixon from Albert Bridge Capital. Drew, great to see you. How are you doing, Ted? I'm doing well. I'm doing, how are you? I'm doing well. Well, why don't you take me through your background and start with how you first got interested in investing? Well, I was, even as a kid in high school, captivated by the stock market and made my first purchase. I think they were AT&T $22.5 strike calls, probably paid 40 or $50 in commissions for a $200 option premium and learned a lot of lessons about how to overpay and what things not to buy. What was it that got you to an option before a stock? I didn't have enough money to buy enough shares of stock. So I thought I'd, that this thing was going <laughs> up and might as well just buy some calls. Literally the first trade. And that was all during this sort of, this is going way back that when I'm in college and sort of the market's going crazy. It's 86, it's 87. And then when the market crashed, at that point I was hooked. We had like an original copy of Security Analysis at Purdue's library and go back and read through that and trying to build all these models to try to see where markets are going to go and all this silly stuff, which in hindsight is stupid and naive, but it was always something that captivated me. And so as I progressed in my career, that was always broadly the focus. And where did you get the formative education beyond paying 25% of the cost of yeah. the option for <laughs> yeah. commission? Yeah. I've always been interested in financial theory. Why do things work the way they work? And interested in psychology. And in the mid-80s, late-80s, early 90s, there was this heretic group of economists, one of them being Richard Thaler, who was up at Cornell at the time, that was, they were poking holes in this, what was known as the efficient market theory, still is. And Eugene Fama, this paragon and pillar of efficient market theory, thought it was really interesting what he was doing. And he had an idea in the mid-90s that, well, let's try to get Richard Thaler down to the University of Chicago. Let's have this place be the battleground for this efficient market versus behavioral debate. And I wanted to go back to business school. And as soon as I saw that happen, I said, well, if I can get into Chicago, that's where I want to go. I want to be a part of that. I was lucky enough to be one of the MBAs that was able to take Fama's course, which allowed me to take Dick Thaler's course on uh, behavioral economics. He also taught a course of the MBAs that was more decision-making. I took that too. So I got pretty close to him there. It was during the tech bubble by now. So this is 98, 99. And so we worked a little bit together outside of class on some other things and got to know each other. And so from that point forward, it was sort of the Morpheus Neo moment where you take the red pill or blue pill. And I really fell into this behavioral finance hole to get myself unplugged from the matrix. Not that I didn't really enjoy the financial side of things, the theoretical side of things. And Fama, I mean, this guy, outside of maybe Douglas Hofstadter and Carl Sagan, he's the smartest guy I've ever met. He's a French major, for crying out loud. He's not like even a mathematician. <laughs> and he's, he was an incredible person to learn from. And that experience grounded me as well. And I love having the debate about, okay, this is an efficient market risk, and that's why there's returns. This is a behavioral thing, and that is creating these excess returns, or neither. But having that training from both of them was very helpful. And then the whole behavioral economics movement was something that has, in fact, increasingly become more and more a part of my investment process as I have been in the industry over these years. So let's walk through, where did you go from grad school then? So from grad school, I started off as an analyst with Fidelity Investments. I first started off in Hong Kong for the summer between my first and second year, and then I came to the London office full-time almost exactly 20 years ago this year. And at Fidelity, our approach was to sort of 
cover a sector for 12 to 18 months, get to know it. And then just as soon as you've got a grasp of things, they would move you to another sector. And I love that. That's sort of by design. It helps you to see a lot of different types of companies across different sectors. It trains you to become a better portfolio manager. Now, other folks have been successful. Capital, for example, with this sort of analyst for life model where you become a specialist. It's not my approach to things now. We, we want to be specialized in sectors, but we also want to remember what the ultimate job is here. It's to pick stocks. It's not to become an expert in that particular field. My initial stop was at Fidelity full-time in the London office 20 years ago. And was London back then by design? It was by design both personally and professionally. Professionally, Fidelity's office in London was the one that was really, to me, very exciting. We were Back then, it was, remember, it was still Deutsche Marks, French Franks, Lira. The euro was just getting ready to start. You could see this equity culture developing. The German banks owned everything in Germany. You could see things getting spat out. And so there was going to be a big chance to do some stock picking in Europe, which was exciting to me. Hong Kong was also super exciting, but it was a little bit more of a top-down market. The money that would flow into our funds in Asia, it's U.S. retail investors at the time, mostly. And if they're going to invest in the Pacific Basin Fund, it's because they want emerging market exposure. And that it's interesting. I like macroeconomics as well, but I, that's just a bit more top-down. I'm, I'm not a top-down guy. I'm more of a bottom-up guy. So the London office was interesting professionally from an interest perspective and also from a fidelity perspective. And my wife's Italian as well. So being in the UK was kind of a halfway house between Italy and, and the US. And you know, that was 20 years ago, thinking we might be there for three to five years, and it's been 20. So what was your path of fidelity? So I covered several different sectors, and it was there for a few more years. And then I got lifted out of there by the guys at Oxif, brought an analyst with me over there. And at the time, Oxif was a much smaller beast than it became later, and it was much more focused on merger arb and risk arb. And uh, great experience with those guys. A little bit difference in philosophy in terms of difference between fundamental investing and some of the more event or catalyst-oriented stuff. And then with a couple other Fidelity alumni, thereafter, we managed money for the man group externally. And then combining all those experiences, starting with the theater behavioral backbone and the deep dive fundamental investing of Fidelity and the sort of more nimble, focused investing that you do at a hedge fund, we put together Alpha Europe. And in 2008, we launched our big fund. Well, our small fund at the time. What was it like launching your own fund? Well, it's exciting. I had kind of been doing it in something similar in smaller versions previously with Oxif and with the guys from Fidelity. And the whole goal was just to, and it still is actually, is there a way we can do this a bit better, a bit smarter? And I hope, actually, I hope in 10 years, I can look back to this day and say, well, I've look how stupid I was 10 years ago. And if you can stay on that path to try to get better and learn more. And so With that, though, there's still always been this overriding view that, hey, we're in the business of generating alpha. We're not market timers. We're not going to be dialing our gross up and down because we have a view of the market. This is about bottom-up idiosyncratic stock picking. Can we identify businesses where we can objectively analyze information we're gathering and see if they're going to beat numbers? Let the fundamentals lead you and then let valuation come in to help you size the positions. We started off with a long-short fund. I have the worst track record of when to launch funds. I launched Alpha Europe originally as an independent company three months before the financial crisis showed up. We launched Albert Bridge three and a half years ago, two months before Brexit. But as it turned out, we did reasonably well back in the day. We made money in 08 and 09 and grew the business nicely, but we were lacking something. And this is part of the learning process for us. We, by definition, have a best ideas portfolio, very concentrated positions. And It's going to sound uh, sort of sacrilegious to some folks, but we almost seek volatility. We want to be exposed to idiosyncratic stories where there's a lot of risk. And if we can 
objectively analyze where Mr. Market might be overreacting or underreacting to particular developments in the business because of some behavioral bias, then we can really jump on our fundamental research and help it to drive conviction. So by design, the goal is to generate significant excess returns over two to three years. But the folks that you want to manage money for when you do that have to have similar time horizons. And any PM you speak to say, oh, we want longer-term money, we want longer-term money. But in our case, when you have your top 10 positions are are 70% of your fund assets and your top five might be 40 or 45, you really need to have two- and three-year, four-year, five-year money on your side, people with similar aligned interests. And that was something that I didn't recognize the importance of until after the financial crash and after we got on our feet and from a business perspective. And that's what led to the merger with Perella Weinberg. And so what was that plan of attack at the time? Well, at the time, and Perella, they have a big brand in the banking business. And at the time, they didn't have a huge brand in asset management, but it was a known group, particularly here in the U.S. And our target audience for what we do is the U.S. University and Endowment cadre of long-term investors. And with the front office, they had some very good guys on the marketing team and and a really big platform that was going to take some of the operational burden off of us. We made the decision to not be independent anymore, but with a sort of independent flair. We turned Dixon Capital's office into Prella Weinberg's European Asset Management office. And with that, began having conversations with uh, some of these longer-term thinkers. And one of the first things we did, as you know, as a lot of other London-based funds and even funds over here had done, is make the long book its own investable vehicle. The combination of having discussions with the longer-term thinkers and having this vehicle where people could get exposure to Europe and best ideas without paying for the beta component of those returns was aligned with how we think the world should work and very much aligned with how they think in terms of their long-term goals. So that was one of the first things we did there. Why don't you touch on the evolution of the hedge fund product for you and what you saw change that caused you to eventually move away from it? Well, to be totally frank, it was more driven by just demand of what the investors wanted from us and what we did. We haven't wanted to really change our process at all through this evolution ourselves. So having these long, short routes, I think, have helped us as we as we transition into focusing entirely on a long-only product now. And even Benjamin Graham said it himself, you know, every single issue can be cheap in one range and dear in another. We have a strong view that you shouldn't get married to your companies, that good, high-quality companies you just buy and hold forever. That's not our approach at all. It's much more driven by the fundamentals in the intermediate term. And so if we can come at it with the diligence and the deep dive that you would have from a long-short perspective, but then also be able to use these long-short tools to help debias ourselves. One of my favorite tools that we have to help us think more clearly is we write deep-dive short cases on everything we want to buy. And this is Certainly, it's a wonderful tool just to memorialize a view and to help us establish that internally at the firm. But it also is a great debiasing tool for me, for the guys on our team, because if you're able to write down, hey, here's where this could go wrong and have a culture where it's okay to identify something is wrong, almost encourage it, then if you've predefined where it's going to go wrong, you're looking for it. And one of the biggest biases we all suffer from is this confirmation bias where and I did it myself as an analyst. I probably still do it without realizing it. But it certainly as an analyst at Fidelity or, or at Oxif or earlier in my career, if you tell your boss that, hey, this is the greatest idea ever, and you've done a deep dive, you met the management a gazillion times, you built huge models written a gazillion notes, 
your ego is tied to it being successful. You think you're smart if you make money. You think you'll be rewarded if this particular outcome is a positive one. And that's silly. And that's been something that I've, I think I've gotten better at over the years and recognizing that, and not to use too many baseball analogies, but we're trying to bat 650. We're trying to get almost two out of three right. And if you can flip that on its head, it also means you're trying to get one out of three wrong. And if you have a culture where we can look at the portfolio and say, okay, which of these things are going to be wrong? Would you buy this size position in this company today if we launched the fund today? Can we be unencumbered by where we bought the stock, when we bought the stock? Because that should have nothing to do with why we own it. When you take the lessons you learned from Dick Thaler, your various investment experiences, and then you go to apply it at Albert Bridge, what have you internalized in terms of how behavior impacts the way you invest? Well, it's twofold. And this is, again, hopefully a positive evolution in my career. If you had asked me that question in 2008, I would have rattled off a lot of important things, but mostly to do with Mr. Market. Here's the confirmation bias they're suffering from. Here's the ambiguity aversion. Here's the representativeness bias. Here's, here are the things that are preventing them from seeing what we see, and we want to take advantage of that. And that would be our approach. And it still is. But we've now realized, and, and actually reading through Thinking Fast and Slow, Danny Kahneman's book, this is Dick Thaler's mentor, and he's the one that came up with a lot of these things that we all do as human beings. And I remember the most interesting passage to me in the whole book was talking about how even he still commits these same errors himself. And so if Danny Kahneman still commits these errors himself, how is Drew Dixon not going to? So what can I do? I can try to set up a culture where it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to recognize those weaknesses and have investors with similar time horizons so that you're not affected by other folks as much as, even if you don't think you're being troubled by someone that's asking you how you're doing the first week of the month, it's affecting you. So if you have folks that don't ask you those questions, that just interested in the process, not the particular outcome of this position, then it's okay for us to be more objective about things. And back to the point about launching at the bad time, we're anchored by a large U.S. university endowment for our launch. And we had Brexit a couple months later. It was, uh, as you know, certainly for us, it was terrible. Our investor didn't call us once, didn't check in, didn't say, how are you doing? We had an update call maybe late August or September. Hey, Drew, I bet you found some great ideas. Yeah, we did. It was nice. Here's how things, yeah, we did obviously recover, but it's those times, it's those periods, especially in the kind of environment that we're all in now. And even though markets have been going dead up, if you've had the wrong kind of factor exposures or if you've had the wrong positions, you get a lot of volatility and you have to have a stomach for it. It's much easier if you recognize that, hey, this is what your investors are in for. They're in for the long term. And also, can we do things ourselves to de-bias our own decision making so that maybe the down days, the down months, the down quarters, the down years aren't as bad as they would be because we're objective about identifying where we're making fundamental mistakes. Let's start breaking down the strategy. You're playing in Europe. What's different about stock picking in Europe from, say, the U.S.? The behavioral stuff's all the same. We all make the same mistakes. I have the same biases that I try to shed and my team tries to shed. Mr. Market has the same biases. They overreact to bad news and vivid recent information. They underreact to things which disconfirm their previous theses. That's as good in Asia or Europe or the U.S. And from a company level, we tend to focus on more mid to large cap companies. And so when you have these multinational businesses, very little 
difference in stock picking from that fundamental perspective. I will say there's some nuance across different regions in terms of when you do have conversations with management teams or with suppliers or competitors. If someone says maybe in Sweden, it means yes. If someone says maybe in uh, the UK, it means no. Uh, so you do have you have a little bit of experience with that over the years, and, and we've been doing it for so long that you know in some cases we're on our fourth or fifth management team. So that helps to some degree. But broadly, accounting systems are fairly reasonably harmonized. I used to spend a lot of time like diving down these rabbit holes of trying to figure out the exact specific line item that was going to make my some of the parts model look good or bad. But the more you're in this business, the more you realize your success in these positions is more driven by what's happening to the fundamentals over the intermediate to long term. And is Mr. Market cottoned on to that yet or not? And if he hasn't, if you're buying stock from a prejudiced seller as you build your portfolio, you get to win. And that's the way we look at it. Do you have biases in terms of the kinds of stocks you're looking for? Yeah, I probably do have a little value bias when I'm looking for it. Maybe that's the time that we all grew up and the kinds of things that we read at a certain age. And I'm sure someone that started their careers in 2011 has the opposite bias. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you buy all these great businesses which are growing ROICs at an accelerating rate? So I have to guard for that. And even though I do guard for it, we still end up having a value-y kind of portfolio. But we've been able to outperform not just value, but the market overall. But I think that's just a consequence of A, having a very concentrated best ideas portfolio rather than something that's more diversified and sensitive to those factors. And B, it's having this back to this culture thing where if we've defined where we might lose money in particular positions, then we're looking for that information. And if it's okay for me or for the guys on my team to hold their hand up and say, you know what, my conviction of this is lower. I just saw this thing happen. We wrote about this as a potential threat to the to the case. And I wouldn't have 75% conviction of this. It'd probably be closer to 65 now. What does that mean for expected returns? And if it turns out it means that we shouldn't own as much of the stock or any of it, we'll go. And that doesn't matter to us if we bought it five years ago or five seconds ago. I think we're really good at making sure we have the portfolio that we want to have today as if we launched the fund today. Where do your ideas come from? So we have a European universe that's basically got 750 companies with market caps of a billion dollars and higher. We eliminate about half those, the ones that are more top-down in nature. So there's never any miners or EMP companies or banks even in the portfolio. We try to stick to sectors where there's a lot of dispersion of returns, a lot of winners and losers within a sector. So that can be industrials, consumer, media, healthcare, equipment, technology. And the analysts on the team will be assigned sectors or subsectors within those groups. And the goal for us in our investment process is to go through our research by sector and try to generate what we call the Alpha Europe focus list. And that focus list is going to be a a group of 60 to 75 companies, which we think will be the most dynamic in those sectors. Could be good, could be bad. How are you defining dynamic? That's as much art as it is science. It could be new management teams. It could be a change in strategy. It could be a huge profit warning where everyone throws the baby out with the bathwater. And, oh, well, maybe that's an overreaction. Let's have a look. It could be uh, you know, it, company meetings. We're, we're having a meeting with the CEO of a company. And increasingly, these conversations we have with companies – the most value added from those is actually hearing them talk about others in their sector, in the ecosystem. They're much more open and a little less biased when they're talking to you about like that. So we get ideas through that. Oh, let's do some more work on that. And we'll put it through what we call our GAME process, which is just a four-letter acronym, G-A-M-E. And in the gather stage, we're just meeting with companies, competitors, suppliers. Everyone does that. Everyone you talk to, every manager out there, that's what we do. We meet, we kick the tires. Yeah, so what? We all do that. But 
moving into step A. Okay, was any of this information helpful? And A stands for what? Analyze. Just analyze the information. Can we take anything out of this fire hose of, of information that we've all been bombarded with and pick out the right bits that, that matter? One of the analogies I use of... If we have a bunch of cards on the table that are turned up and we know which, we think we do a pretty good job of trying to identify which two or three cards are the ones that matter. It's never 10 cards. It's never overcomplicated. It's always two or three cards that matter, two or three fundamental things about a business. And we'll pick those cards out and start working on it. And part of that process is to see if Mr. Market picks up the same three cards. If they do, there's nothing for us to do. But if they're picking up different cards, ignoring our cards, then we have a chance to see if we can be more objective about how we analyze these things. And it's hard. Again, back not to overly quote Ben Graham, but another one of my favorite quotes from his, which he wrote in 1934, by the way, the analyst must not be misled by the availability of a mass of information into making elaborate studies of non-essentials, which is a long-winded way of saying, watch out for information overload. This is in 1934. This is before real-time quotes, before CNBC, before everyone's barking at you on the sell side saying, buy this and sell that. And that's a real trick for the good analyst to sort of, okay, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter, that does. Let's work on it. In that process of analyzing the information that's in front of you, how do you balance then being robust and thorough with focusing on the few things that matter? Yeah. I think, again, that's that's, that's as much art as there is science to that whole process. When we do that analysis, we'll... We're not just trying to figure out the things that matter. We'll almost build two models. We'll build, here's what the financial model will look like based on these three key drivers. If a certain company is launching a product which is going to do this, or if they're divesting of this, which might mean that. And we'll build a shadow model. This is kind of the short side. How will this company be a great short? And by doing those things, you start almost start helping each other out a bit in terms of flexing things and modeling things and seeing how we get to the crux of what's actually driving the story. And sometimes the things which affect the short case are different variables than the things which might be affecting the buy case. So that helps. And then putting all those things together, we effectively emerge with a conviction figure. You know, if I saw a hundred of these, I think we'd get 65% of them right. 70, 55, 80. We'll never go higher than 80, even if we think we have a sure thing. But those then become probabilities for us. And then we'll assign the probability to the buy case and to the sell case and combine with a few other metrics that helps us to come up with this notion of, okay, which of these names in the focus list actually are qualifying to be in a best ideas portfolio? What do you constitute a thorough analysis of a company? It's basically the whole game process. So it's, you have to have a strong sector construct, knowing what drives the competition, knowing the dynamics of who's competing against who and how each of these companies in the group makes money. And then it's a matter of just staying on top of that and maintaining this framework as competition happens and as businesses evolve and as management teams come and as management teams go. And then when we find things which are basically just changes, hey, this is the way things used to be, they're going to be different now. That is the kind of thing that makes us want to dive in and understand what it is that's going to be different. And as we do that, Ultimately, we want it to be expressed in some change in a financial metric. It could be sales line. It could be EBIT margins. It could be earnings. Something in a a year from now, two years from now, two and a half years from now, where we see earnings or cash flows or whatever is going to drive Mr. Market's appetite, if we see them potentially markedly surprising the consensus investor, then we have a chance to take advantage of that. 
so that's going to be a lot of financial modeling. We build financial models for all the companies in the focus that's list. That's your M in game. That's the M. That's the modeling. And that's a fidelity thing. It's, I think, a lot of managers think. But that's certainly something we did a lot at FIDO, and it's still a big part of me. And that's how I get the the conviction. Again, we don't try to get too bogged down in rabbit holes and say, oh, if you do this and they do that, and then they do that, and then this happens, and this might work. It's just more about going through the lines and saying, okay, if these products are successful, and from the checks we're doing, they look like they might be. What could happen to earnings? What could happen to gross margins? How much does that fill down? We've been successful historically in a large automobile manufacturer that, with a gregarious CEO that embarked on a campaign of value creation. And it was such a shock to the system for the people that were bearish in the company, they refused to process it. And then if you looked at what they were doing in their footprint, they were changing around the kinds of cars they were making and we, just a very simple stuff. What does this mean for gross margins for this business? And you could see the cash flows be spit out. Once you identify that and you see a consensus investor which is refusing to even acknowledge that information, well, that's, that's the double whammy. Those are the things that we're more likely to be accurate on than things without both components. So alongside of the modeling that you mentioned, you've also written a blog post taking the other side of DCF analysis. Yeah. So when we do the modeling, again, this is a big change from how I started at Fidelity. But, you know, I would just do the deep dive DCF, get everything from every angle, build the model my own way. Oh, this is how they should state earnings, not how they do state earnings. This is what it really looks like. Let me get to the free cash flows and do the best valuation work I can do here. And what you end up with is something that's very interesting and helpful in the private equity world. Great. But that's not what we do. This is public markets. There's a price up there that is reflecting everyone else's view about this company. And how on earth can I compare what my view is to everyone else's if I'm doing it in an entirely different way? So I very quickly switched to sort of, let's see how the company presents their numbers. Now, there's all sorts of work we can do in the footnotes to see if they're playing games or see if they're we can match up their free cash flows to the EBIT to see if they're capitalizing R&D or doing those traditional tricks of fooling investors. And we can, Yes, that's great. Great stuff to identify. But broadly, we're building models so we can easily update when they report and see how they're presenting the information to Mr. Market so that then as we do our own modeling, we can compare it to what people think to see if we're ahead or if we're behind and let that lead the thesis as we do it. And then that turns to your E in game. Yeah, that's the final hurdle and the most important one. And this is where we spend a lot of time trying to evaluate the consensus investor. And every manager you speak to will say, oh, yeah, we do contrarian things. We're, we try to do things differently. And, and, and I think from our perspective, we've just very much codified that a little bit more in terms of our approach. And if we find a great management team that has a wonderful business that is spinning out tons of cash flows or, or eventually will – it sounds like a nice setup for a company, but if there's no delta, if there's no difference between our view and the market's view, then my view is the price is telling you this already. Now, the price might get higher. That's just because investor appetites for certain factors. That has nothing to do with the idiosyncratic stock picking. For me, we've got to find that delta, and that can mean finding a mediocre business that the market thinks is terrible. It can be finding an excellent business that the market only thinks is good. It's it's a change. And... So in that E stage, we're spending a lot of time trying to segregate, okay, here's the sell side, here's the buy side. The sell side is very transparent. We see what their views are. We can read their research and see maybe where they're focused on the wrong things or the right things. The buy side, we spend a lot of time going through the stock loan desks around London. Okay, here's where people are short. We might even talk to friends who are short the same names and sort of get a view for why they are 
why they are negative. And if we find information that makes us less convicted in our thesis, that's great. Whether we've made money or lost money in the position. But it's just it's having a sense of the kinds of things that we think are important to the market. And hopefully if we've been objective about it, then it allows us to see why Mr. Market agrees or disagrees with us. And maybe they haven't been as objective. And if that's the case, then we have a chance. What's an example of a situation where you felt like the market was focusing on the wrong things? There's one of these biases that's called ambiguity aversion. Well, you combine that with availability bias, but it's more of an overreaction thing that happens in the short term. So if you remember BP in the Deepwater Horizon, stock cratered, and it was terrible, and it was bad news. Volkswagen in the Dieselgate scandal in 2015, stock was killed. And that's a great example, too. The stock sells off to 90, 95 euros a share from 160, and the worst fears of what kind of fines they would end up having to pay turn out to be true. But by the time they wrote the checks, the stock's back to 145, 150, 155. People double and triple count bad news. They get really, really scared. And very recently, we thought we had a potential situation like that with Bear, which we say buyer in in the UK. So I might flip back and forth and say it the wrong way here. But growing up, it's Bear Aspirin. Over there, it's buyer. But it was a very similar kind of move. The stock goes down about 40% peak to trough, just like BP did, just like Volkswagen did. And we thought to ourselves, well, this is another potential ambiguity aversion case where people are just selling this thing down. And it is unknowable. It's hard to know what will the ultimate litigation liabilities be from these California courts or elsewhere over Roundup, glyphosate, which they acquired those liabilities when they bought Monsanto. But to us, it was like, hey, this is history repeating itself. And we kind of wanted to believe it. But after doing a bit deeper dive into it and seeing some of the behavior of some of the peer group, we were like, actually, maybe not as much as baked in as we thought. But that leads me to the, my new favorite bias, which I haven't even talked about the original biases we look for, but my favorite one now is the bias bias. People are now talking about behavioral finance so much, and a lot of them are relatively new to it, they almost want to start looking as if there's definitely going to be a bias here. You're biased to find a bias. And so that's something I think we all have to be cautious of as well. What are the other ones that you incorporate into your work? Well, the biggest one, and this is Kahneman and Tversky 101, is confirmation bias. So... We all tend to find information which supports views that we already have. It's almost echo chamber kind of stuff. And I did it as an analyst at Fidelity, and I catch myself doing it now. An example, again, this is a hypothetical example, but if you're long SAP, big enterprise resource planning software manufacturer in Germany, and let's say I'm short SAP, and we have our reasons why we're long or short, and then we see Oracle have a profit warning competitor in the space. If you're long SAP and you're short SAP, you might have two completely different interpretations of that same exact data point. If I'm short it, I'll be like, oh, this is great. Enterprise application spending falling. These guys are seeing negative like for likes year on year. This foretells bad news for their biggest competitor in the space. But if you're long it, you may be like, this is awesome. I knew it. They're finally taking share from Oracle. And then I've got data points from these investors that are they're switching from Oracle to SAP. And that's why Oracle missed. It's about us being objective about the information that comes to us. And that's one of my favorite parts. As you go through this name by name, how do you turn it into a portfolio? Well, we make sure we're following the same process across these sectors, this game process. So from a portfolio management perspective, as long as we've each followed the same approach to sort of what constitutes an Albert Bridge idea, 
then it becomes more of an apples to apples comparison for me as I decide where to put capital. If I want to take some capital out of this name because it's rallied and the expected returns have fallen, I don't need to stay in the same sector because we follow the same process to get this focus list or to get this portfolio. Another one of the posts, the blogs we wrote was, I think it was called Kelly Was Right. And it has to do with uh, the Kelly criterion and basically how people size bets when they go to the casino. Well, there's ways to do this where it's also somewhat similar when you aggregate multiple securities in a portfolio and construct it so that each extra dollar is allocated to the right place. With, I don't want to make it sound too scientific because if our conviction level changes, our time horizon changes, we go see the company and a little bit of our model changes, that could affect things. But broadly, the decision of where to allocate the capital is driven by those expected returns. So back to your earlier question about the kinds of biases we're trying to find, it could be something that's got a confirmation bias here or a disposition effect here or an ambiguity aversion there, but it's all driven by the fundamentals getting better than the market realizes and where the expected returns are. And as long as we follow the same process to get the idea into the focus list, then it makes it less difficult to just allocate capital wisely. It sounds like a lot of the conviction that will lead to position sizing within the portfolio is very subjective. So how do you come up with position weights for these names? It can be subjective. I mean, at the end of the day, I think everything's always more subjective than we think it is. So what can we do to make it sort of less so? One is to build this short model and this long model so that we have a reasonable gauge of what the upside and downside could look like in a great or a terrible scenario. Now, those are kind of binary. I'm not talking about a distribution of different outcomes. I'm talking very simply, here's what it's worth if we're right. Here's what it's worth if we're dead wrong. And then it's about asking ourselves, okay, how long will it take Mr. Market to wake up to this thesis? Is it going to take 24 months? Or maybe there's some events coming. It might take 15 or 18. It might take 36 because it's a long burn. But once we have those factors in, we can come up with this notion of annualized potential expected returns. And that's how we basically rate the companies that are in the focus list and make sure we're allocating capital to the ones with the highest returns. And by design, we do not care about overweights or underweights in particular sectors or countries. If it turns out that we're finding no healthcare equipment ideas in Switzerland, we don't own any healthcare equipment ideas in Switzerland. It's just it's just the ideas that come through and, and germinate through. We are paying a little bit more attention now, obviously, to geographic weights as it relates to Brexit. We don't want to have 80% of the portfolio in the UK. Might be the right thing to do, but as we move toward that, finally, maybe, we don't want to have too much of an exposure there in case things are crazy one way or the other. As the market is moving around, how do you adjust your position sizing within, say, a group of the same names in the portfolio? So even if we look at the things that have been our biggest contributors over many years, our biggest contributors have been in the book for four to five years. But they might be a 5% position, and it might go up to 8 and back down to 4 and out to 9 That's all driven by their expected returns and by the expected returns of the things around it in that portfolio. It's this notion of making sure that we have the mindset that this is the portfolio we would own today if we launched the fund today. And so if you find a security that's you think it's worth 150 euros a share and it's trading at 100 and it's got downside to 80, you can come up with the expected return metric. And if the stock goes from 100 to 120, well, the expected return just fell. By definition, it must be due less capital than it was before. And that capital can be moved somewhere else. How do you sync up this notion that you're going to move position sizes based on risk reward, which have to do with upside and downside, which is going inevitably to be tied to something that looks like a DCF model where most of your focus on the DCF is sort of understanding consensus. 
I'm kind of wondering about how you deal with the possibility of false precision. Yeah. So my whole post about DCF was that you do get this false precision and it can start to sing whatever tune you want it to sing because uh, of some bias you have going. You like the management team? Well, you're going to make your DCF work. You don't like the management team? Your DCF's going to look lousy. But the fact is the DCF's the right answer to actually what the thing is worth. And all these other things are just proxies for that. So my view, at least in my experience, and certainly the way I do things, sometimes an EBITDA or a price-earnings ratio or some of the parts can be a better proxy for that DCF answer than the DCF itself because it's less complicated. So as we end up having positions for a very long time horizon, for us, it still consists of a bunch of shorter-term time horizons. Are they going to be numbers over the next year or two? That is the primary focus on driving its inclusion in the portfolio. And then the, how we size it will then would be driven a bit more by the actual, okay, what it will be the result of that. If this company beats earnings by 20% and prints this number in 2021, what kind of multiple will the market pay for that? There's an absolute number that we'll use just based on in any market environment. Here's what it should be worth from a free cash flow perspective. Or what will it be worth from a relative market? Here's your peer group. Here's where they trade. Should it trade at a premium or at a discount? What's it done historically? What will you pay for it if it prints that number? What will the market pay for it? That's the number that matters. And that becomes the thing that helps sets our upside and downside. How do you work with your team? So with the team, we assign the sectors to each of us. I still work as an analyst myself. We try to be pretty, kind of a fidelity thing, try to be pretty independent broadly. People can go within their sector and spend time whichever companies they want. And the goal is to come up with the things that might be the most interesting or dynamic. And then in my interaction, we're basically, my goal is just to make sure we're following the game, make sure we're playing the game, gather, analyze, model, evaluate. I might press a bit more on the short case to make sure that we're really focused on that and encourage them to realize in myself that let's say we get two out of three stocks, back to that earlier point, right? And let's say next year, five of our names are sucking alpha out of the portfolio. And that will happen. Even if we get 75% right, five of these names are going to be terrible. Which five are they? Let's try to find out now. We're in the business of getting two out of three right, one out of three wrong. All of our trouble is already in the portfolio. Let's go out and look at it this way. Where are we going to get this right or wrong? And We try to prevent my thesis drift, their thesis drift. We just write a lot. We memorialize our theses all day long, just for our own internal consumption. What is our buy case? What is the foundation? What are the reasons we own this stock? And again, going back earlier in my career, some of the biggest lessons or mistakes for me would be owning things for a period of time, particularly when they do well. You think you're doing great, but then you ask yourself, well, why do I still own this thing? All the reasons I bought it for have happened, I'm only owning it because it's kind of gone up. And meanwhile, there's other things where I could be doing work and spending time would be a better use of that capital. So just continually stay on it and monitor that and almost insist that we have that process around the group. How do you think of the split of your mind share between behavioral analysis of stocks and underlying business fundamentals of yeah, companies? it's a great question. And that's evolved too. When I started off at Fidelity, I was 95% bottom-up, deep-dive stock picking, 5%, what's the market getting wrong? As I moved through Oxif and into Albert Bridge in 2008, it probably had moved down toward 85, 80. Today, it's still a vast majority is it's the deep fundamental dive. 70, 75% of the reason why a stock is in the portfolio is that we have picked information out that helps us be confident that they're going to beat numbers. But 25, 30% of it is this mismatch. Can we find the mismatch? Can we find this area where Mr. Market is not just disagreeing with us, but can we understand why? 
some of the scariest times for me are when we don't know why. Why is the market not paying attention to this? We don't see a particular bias. We don't see any overreaction. We don't. These guys actually already kind of like it. If you can't see the mismatch, then we don't have the behavioral edge. And so it's that, back to the earlier point, it's that E stage. That's the hoop you have to jump over. And it's a continuous process. You have to keep jumping over it. Where do you get that information from to sort of gather that information, analyze the information when the information is, what does the market think? What is the market getting different from yeah. what you see? Yeah, so we can bring in sell-side coverage. So we have a strong sense of the number of analysts covering a stock, the number of buys, sells, and holds. We can weight each of those differently. It's actually quite different. In Europe, a hold doesn't have the same flavor as a hold here in the U.S. in terms of what the analysts say. But we can make some adjustments for that. And we'll come up with the notion if the sell side broadly likes or dislikes a company. We do something similar with the buy side. Obviously, there's a buyer for every seller, but we can at least get a sense of what's happening by looking at short interest, how stale is it getting, which kind of money is long or short certain companies. And as we aggregate those things, we're able to, I think, develop a pretty good sense of the kinds of things that people are paying attention to. And one point I would make, and this has been just a change in the market, and it might even be more exacerbated by MIFID two now, which has kind of decreased the amount of folks that are covering companies. Increasingly, I think there's almost been more of a melding between the sell side and the sell side's clients. So when we see broker notes, we call it reverse broking in the UK, it almost feels like it's one of their big clients that has pushed this analyst to convince them that here's the thesis that matters. And they're out marketing that. And we can kind of tell that's the case. So it, that's nice for us because then the sell side becomes even a proxy for the buy side in some cases. But it's a key for us. And again, we all say we're contrarian. Hey, everyone likes this stock. It's trading on 35 times earnings. Let's be short. Or, hey, this stock's on four and a half times earnings with a 20% free cash flow. You know, people hate it. It must be a buy. And that's first level stuff. That doesn't get the job done. You, you have to have a view that Things are going to change, that business is going to get better, that fundamentals are going to improve, and the market doesn't want to see it. And if you have that mentality, then maybe you get to avoid one value trap that you might not have avoided before. You've spent time early in your career in Asia, you grew up in the U.S., and a lot of time in Europe. Have you been able to determine that any of those three regions are, let's just use the word, easier than others to find an efficiency in stocks? Yeah, they're all the same. I do think over here we have a view that maybe things are less efficient. I'm speaking specifically about Europe. I can't really comment on Asia as much now, but certainly in Europe, we have a view that things might be less efficient there than here. And I'll tell you this, that Europeans have the same view of Americans. And from our perspective, it's difficult to pick stocks in both places. A lot of these rules, how to do good fundamental research objectively, how to not pretend that you're smarter than everybody else, but just thinking more clearly. I think those apply equally in both places. I really do. You've mentioned your blog a few times, and I thought it was particularly interesting looking at some of your past quarterly letters, how the mode of communication with your clients has changed. Yeah. And I was late to this. I've always been a big writer of thought pieces. And I had an audience of three people for that. It was basically two people on my team and maybe my wife. And we would send it to our investors. And uh, part of it was just a cathartic thing for me to be able to write because I like to write about investments and financial theory and decision-making and behavioral finance. And we started sending more of those pieces out to our investors. And 
decided that you know with this platform that maybe it'd be easier just to set up a blog so people could subscribe to it and they can just automatically get it. And it would also force me to every two weeks write something and help to communicate to our investors. And it's another one of those debiasing tools. If we can do a good job communicating with our partners about how we think and what we do, well, that lowers their discount rate about us and about the kinds of things we do. And so the original goal there was to do it that way. And to use Twitter as sort of a, another distribution mechanism for making sure people knew we'd updated a blog post. And I have to say, it's kind of gone beyond that for me. I've met a lot of really smart people in finance Twitter. And if Morgan Housel writes something, I'm going to read it like now. And uh, <laughs> it really goes to helping me sort of continue learning and to continue hopefully getting better at what we do. But but the blog, yeah, it's a fun thing for me. And it's hopefully been helpful for our investors as well. I think it probably behooves us to talk about the story that you put out that got the most attention of all the things you've done in finance. So why don't you talk a little bit about that post? Yeah, well, that post was more of a personal post that I put out back in June. And it was about my son. He had gone through some hard times as a teenager. And I hesitated a bit if I wanted to put it out on Twitter. But in this case, I was like, well, this is a nice forum maybe to get the word out for folks. And it's basically a story about a struggling teenager who is at the depths that I wouldn't want any other parent to have to suffer with their kids and how he got himself out of it. And while I wrote that post, he allowed me to share it, thankfully. And I think he and uh, another fella that became key in the story have helped a lot of kids and parents with that story. What's the name of that so people can... Stay in the game. Stay in the game. All right. True. let's turn to a couple of closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Okay. Well, I'm terrible at it, but I love playing my guitar. That's my downtime. And even though I'm 20 years past my prime, if there ever was a prime, I still get a lot of peace out of shooting baskets outside. So those two things, those are the two. It must be an Indiana thing, but that's the stuff. Right, what's your biggest pet peeve? Taxi drivers that take the wrong route. Does that happen more in New York or London? I'm not in New York that much. In New York, it happens all the time. But in London, these guys actually know where they're going. They, the guys with the knowledge in particular. But even still, I find a way to get upset about it. If they take the wrong way, you can ask anybody. <laughs> it's terrible. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? I have quite a few there, too. I, my biggest one now is probably that there's a lot of backtesting where folks go back and look at the way things behaved. And they're calling anything a factor like 300 different factors as if these were state variables of a hedging concern like Bob Merton talked about with the ICAPM. Factors are things that either have to have a risk story related to them and that's why they behave a certain way or a behavioral story. It can't be that, that something had a certain behavior over some period of time and that somehow means it's sustainable and it'll last forever. So get specific, get more academic about dis defining what factors are, and then we can move forward. Is there a particular factor you hate the most right now that people are calling a factor that you don't no, think not, is? No, no, it's just the number. Like, I don't know who it was. John Cochran maybe talks about the factor zoo. And and uh, there's some new factors, which are, to me, fascinating. Betting against beta. This is flies in the face of single factor cap M, and that's what the guys at AQR call it. It's, it's similar to the low vol kind of factor where people, theoretically, stocks with a high beta are supposed to move more higher than the market does the market side. It turns out it's the other way around. And, and this is something for Gene Fama and the efficient market crew to have to grapple with. And it does beg the question of, in which you'll have plenty of folks say that the cap M and the whole structure was wrong in the first place. From my perspective, if Fama and French introduce 
value and introduce the small cap bias in a three-factor model. And then Mark Carhart, a few years later, introduces momentum. Those are the key ones, really. Momentum is maybe more certainly more important than size and maybe more important than value. And then you get this slow vol, this betting against beta stuff. And the theory is tougher for me to come up with why that might work. Quality. Quality is another one. Is that a behavioral story or is that a is that a risk story? It's tough. They seem to work. The momentum stuff, I am convinced there's no risk story for, and that is an underreaction bias where people just refuse to process information, which disconfirms their previous news, whether you're long or short. I mean, Hong Lemonstein wrote a paper years ago called Bad News Travels Slowly. If you get information that doesn't jibe with what you believed before, you just don't care. I love seeing that. What reading do you almost never miss? Well, it's back to Morgan Housel. If he writes anything, I don't miss it. And to help me keep track of anything that I want to make sure I'm staying on top of, I visit Tadas Viscontas Abnormal Returns website every single day. It's the one thing I religiously, if I go on holiday, if I'm away, I come back and I'll go back through Tuesday's links, Monday's links, Sunday's links, make sure I see that because he's the world's best curator of the kind of information, at least in the finance world and other areas that interest me. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? It's teaching by example, and it's civility and it's fairness. It's having civil discourse. My father's always been that way. My mom's been that way. Now, I fail there all the time. You can ask London taxi drivers, but I'm working on it. But the fairness one, that one, I don't like it when things aren't fair. And that's been an overriding theme for me forever. That can be someone, we call it cue barging in the UK, jumping the line. Someone jumps in front of you in line at Starbucks, that's not fair. Someone jumps in front of some kid at line to get into Yale because his parents dropped a bunch of money in there. That's not fair either. I hate that kind of stuff. Last one, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I thought I knew it earlier in life, but I didn't know it to the degree I do now. And it's the importance of relationships and of spending time with smart people, with people smarter than you. You can keep learning. You can keep developing. They keep developing when you have that. It's easy, particularly in our industry, you can get bogged down in your world with your team. And to the extent that you read, that helps. But by hanging out with with smart people, it's just fun. It's invigorating. And uh, that's been something that I've, I think is even more important than I realized 10 years ago. Drew, thanks so much. All right, Ted. Thanks for your time, man. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.